Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As the name says, we're business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have those who help others create and grow their businesses, and we have the do-it-yourselfers like to have your own hands on the levers as you develop. If you're one or more of the above, and many of our listeners like me who tune in every Tuesday are all of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we can help you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. You'll get immediate access to over 230 episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics related to business creators like you. You will get fresh content every week and every five-star rating. It helps us help more business creators just like you, so be sure to say nice things about the episodes you love. Today, we're going to dive into something, and this is something that I deal with so often with our business creators, the issues, the legal issues that go along with creating businesses, especially online businesses. If you've been around, you've heard of the whole thing with Getty Images and where you source your pictures from, and even if you're searching for a domain name, you often find that the domain name that you were hoping for is already owned by somebody else. And when you go to that website, you find that somebody else is already doing something with a name similar to yours. What do we do about these things? These issues and other issues we're going to dissect today, and to help us do that, we have on board Richard Chapo, somebody I've been looking to interview for a long time. Just tell you a little bit about him. Richard Chapo is a business lawyer in San Diego, beautiful city, who's been practicing for 25 years. He advises small and large online businesses on how best to comply with laws such as copyright laws and FTC regulations. Richard is a massive hockey fan, an avid traveler. He's lived in exotic locations such as Siberia, and he can be reached through his websites, SoCalInternetLawyer.com and DMCAAgentService.com. And if those letters, DMCA, mean anything to you, which they should, you want to have your pad of paper and two pens out to take notes and capture those aha moments that are going to come up naturally as Richard shares what he has for you today. And I always say have a pad of paper and two pens because one of the pens might break, one of the pens might run out of ink, or your cat might jump up on your desk, take one of the pens and run off with it, which has happened to me more than once. So always have two. At any rate, Richard, come on in. The weather's fine. Welcome aboard. Wow, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, as we're looking forward to having you. And I know you have a lot of stuff you want to share with us today. In the green room, in the green room we went over some of your outlines, so we have a lot of different topics we're going to cover. But before we do that, I know some of our listeners may have a separate browser tab open, so they're getting to know you a little bit, find out what you're all about. And I read off your, your introductory bio, which is great, but what I'd like to do with our listeners is just take a moment at the very beginning, tell us a little bit more about your journey and what's influenced you and brought you to this place where you are serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, I had the the horrible upbringing uh, of growing up in San Diego, California. That's, uh, as you oh, yeah. noted, a, 
uh, a rough place to live. Um, <laughs> it was as bad as it sounded. Uh, and after that, you know, did the thing most people did, went to college, uh, got a college degree in something that I was completely uninterested in, but it got me through the four years. And after that, I decided to get into law and uh, some, somewhat of an irony about it. I got into law because I was actually going to do international law. And my theory was I would be traveling a lot. I've always enjoyed traveling. My family did quite a bit of it. Uh, and then, as you probably surmised, the old internet kind of put the kibosh on that because you know they no longer really need to travel anywhere with video conferencing and what have you. Um, right. uh, yeah, but came out of law school and did litigation for about a decade. Um, complex litigation, uh, the area called business, uh, bad faith insurance litigation, uh, and then wrongful death litigation, defending doctors and and uh, hospitals and things of that sort. And I got a little old pretty quick, so um, after that, took a year sabbatical, ended up in Siberia. Uh, teaching law and general basic English and you know a whole variety of things. It was, it was quite an eye opener. Um, and after that came back, but well, that period gave me time to think. And really, you know, from the legal profession's perspective, we tend to work a lot. You know, um, drug and alcohol abuse is a real problem. Suicide, things of that sort, is high pressure environment. And so, being away from it for a year gave me time to think about you know what I liked about the profession, what I didn't like, um, and kind of you know reevaluate the whole process. And I came back and had a friend uh who I'd worked with who was an attorney who had become CEO of a internet company. This was in two thousand. So if you think back then a lot of people were still on dial up and what have you. It was a very primitive time. Um uh, but he couldn't find a lawyer that could do any of this work and so he started asking me about it and uh, you know, it turned out to be something that I liked because one, it was a new area of law, so there were a lot of unanswered questions. But two, uh, you know, my practice is really focused on helping people grow, uh, helping them grow their businesses. And having done it since then, uh, it's been really rewarding to see some of my smaller clients grow and do bigger clients and be successful. And uh, to know that at least I help them avoid some of the major landmines that are out there uh, so they could focus on their business and get there. So. For me, it was kind of a life balance change and then more of a focus on you know, representing clients that I can help grow versus ones where I'm out you know, trying to defend wrongful death cases and things of that sort. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, I was just I just came up the other day for me in conversation. Uh, 25 years ago in the mid-1990s, somebody approached me and said, hey, have you heard this thing called the Internet? I said, yeah, well, I just got my America Online account, and I got my first email the other day. Very exciting. And uh, and they mentioned to me that I might want to consider investing in these things called domain names. Like, what's a domain name? It's that thing where you look up a website on the Internet, and it's .com or what have you. And their suggestion was, look at the names of some famous people and some famous companies that have not figured out this domain thing yet. You can buy up all these domains right now and then sell them to the people and make a profit. And that was kind of tempting to me, except for two things. Number one, I didn't have the money at the time. And number two, I just didn't really understand, is this really possible? Is this like a fly-by-night scheme? But then what we saw happen over the next few years is these celebrities, these famous people, and these large brands became savvy to the fact they needed to be online because they didn't have somebody standing by their side like you that said, hey, you know what? Might want to get that domain name before somebody else grabs it. Uh, I started to hear these cases of folks paying hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, just to own their own name, and it was actually completely legal. Now, in some cases, it got dirty, where you'd have this person holding the domain name, and they would go to the person or the company that that domain name was about and said, hey, I, I've been holding this for you, and for X amount of money, I'll sell it to you right now. And that company would say, well, no, why don't you just give it to me? It's my name. And I'd say, okay, well, you don't want to buy it? Fine. I'm going to put up this really nasty website under your name and see how you like that. And you ended up with a lot of 
legal cases involved. And then you had folks who said, no, I won't buy it. I'll just sue you for it. And in fact, I knew somebody who had gotten in very early on that curve and bought up thousands of domain names. He did have money, and he bought a bunch of stuff. And if you looked up his name on the Internet, I mean, he was, he was you know, perfectly ethical businessman, and he wasn't the kind who was putting up dirty sites to blackmail people or anything like that. But he went through a lot of this, and you could see the record of how he disgorged himself of all these domain names. In some cases, he said, sure, sounds good to me. Here's the money. Give me the domain. Sometimes they negotiate, which was fine because he still made a profit, and sometimes they sued him. And when he looked at the legal cases, the best way to describe the, uh, his results were win some, lose some. So even in the early days, what we really called the Wild West of just getting the Internet going, a lot of things were unclear because if a guy like that, you know, again, perfectly ethical guy, good, good businessman, somebody I would recommend you do business with actually, uh, had a win some, lose some record when it came to these things, that tells you that a lot of things were not clearly defined then. And you might argue that while we've you know, gotten some things lined up, there's still a lot of landmines that are out there when it comes to branding, uh, placing yourself on the Internet, uh, dealing with information that may, you may or may not even have the rights to, and in some cases not even knowing what questions to ask to determine how to establish those rights. No, I agree. I, th I think people would be shocked to learn at how how much of the Internet and the legal issues that surround usage of content you know, still is up in the air. I mean, we just finished the Lens case. Lens case was... Uh, uh, a case that was just uh, decided by the Supreme Court and went on for 10 years. And it was a copyright dispute over whether um, a woman had posted a YouTube video of her baby dancing to a Prince song, and it was about 20 seconds of the Prince song. Was that fair use? Was it not fair use? This went on for 10 years. I mean, wow. massive amounts of money was spent litigating this issue, and here we are in 2018, and you would think we would have that issue down by you know by now. Um, you know, the other thing that you see, you were talking about domains, you're absolutely right, cyber squatting, huge issues, all that law developed. Uh, the new trend with it that is somewhat humorous is instead of going and trying to register the name of a celebrity or a company, some, something of that sort, there are a couple of domain registrars out there who have gotten tricky and they've uh, registered uh, top-level domain names that have the same effect. So, for instance, there was a group out of Canada that, that registered um, or got permission from ICANN uh, to issue domains for dot sucks. So you could have, you know, yeah. Chrysler dot sucks, McDonald dot sucks, you know, all these kinds of things. And of course they were selling them for the low introductory price of 2,500 bucks. Um, right. <laughs> so, you know, the one thing I will say about the internet for better or for worse, it is an entrepreneur's uh, paradise. People come up with things, you know, you'd never really think <laughs> of. And it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially, you know, we're beyond the point where, uh, you may likely get your .com. If you have an idea for a .com you want for your business, uh, if you get that .com, you almost have to ask yourself, why is it still sitting out there? So you have to be smart and do the Wayback research and find out who owned the domain previously, what websites were hosted under that domain, and did I just buy something that could be really nasty, or am I thinking about buying something that was used for a really nasty purpose, like uh, like a company that had ethical issues and had been in the news, or somebody just doing some pretty nefarious stuff? You just never really know. And so we're, now we're getting into the, uh, we see some people doing the .co, which was one of the responses to the lack of .coms, and even that's pretty saturated by this point. And uh, you have ICANN releasing all the new extensions. Uh, I recently acquired an extension .today. Uh, because every other variation of this phrase I wanted 
was already taken by something. And I just needed this mostly for email domain use because I wanted to have an email that I could say to somebody and they could easily write it down. That's a challenge I was having. And, uh, and even then, I had to be very careful about what I did with it, uh, even though it was pretty general in nature. So now that I think some of our listeners are thinking, holy heck, they come up with something new every day, how do our listeners, what do our listeners need to do to avoid what you call a founder's nightmare when creating a business? So founder's nightmares, um, you know, talking about the entrepreneurship of the Internet, it's so easy to start a business. If you start a business by yourself, that's fine. But if you start it with two, you know, with another person or multiple people, um, one of the issues that happens frequently, and this is also true for offline businesses, is um, everybody goes rushing forward and nobody puts anything in writing. And, of course, you know, it's, it's like getting married or buying a car. You know, everything seems perfect right when you do it. You're down the line. Maybe things aren't so perfect. Um, you know, and there are some regrets. And so the situation that you see is um, one of the partners or maybe more uh, stops carrying their weight. They're either not showing up or they're not fulfilling their obligations. And the problem uh-huh. that you run into, the, if yeah, if you don't have anything in writing that describes how to address yeah. that situation, it's very problematic because what will happen is uh, you eventually will have to sue that person. That person will sue the business. The other founders will also each other, and you end up in court in front of a judge who knows nothing about your business and is going to try to decide how to divide it up, uh, You know how, how this person should be removed, what they should get, uh, and they're going to use state law to do that, and the law is different in each state. But almost universally, it's going to produce a result that nobody's happy with, um, <laughs> and it can really short-circuit you know, short circuit your business. Um, so a founder's agreement um, is generally what's referred to, but it can be anything from an operating agreement for an LLC, bylaws, uh, or a shareholder agreement for a corporation, anything of that sort. You want to have those in place. If you don't have those in place, there are, I can't tell you how many, probably millions of businesses there are in the world that have what are called zombie partners. Uh, and you have a business that's growing. It's not big enough yet that you have enough resources to deal with your partner program. So what happens is that partner just kind of hangs around. And maybe they just don't show up for work anymore. But when you do distributions from the company and profits, you have to pay them because they're a yeah. partner. And so, as you can imagine, things get a little bitter amongst the founders. <laughs> and it often goes downhill quickly. Uh, but there are tons of companies of this. And in my profession, to be honest, lawyers lawyers aren't as bad as architects. But you know, the average architectural firm, there would be three architects. Almost none of them have this agreement. Uh, and so if one stops working or what have you, you know, you have problems. So on the internet business, you know, a common, you, you common, well, you have common combinations of, um, people with different skill sets. So a webmaster, you know, maybe a programmer, somebody that does the marketing, the SEO, what have you. And if one of those people starts falling down, well, not only are they not doing what you need done, but you have to go hire somebody to get that stuff done. And, uh, yeah. so it becomes just, just a huge mess. So getting a founder's agreement in place, anything in writing really, um, is, is key. And you want to do it at the beginning before money is coming in the door uh, because then everybody's fairly relaxed and, you know, hopefully you're not going to have too many, you know, major issues with it. Um, but you always want to have these types of agreements in place and because if you don't, you're just an inviting disaster. Oh, yeah. And a lot of business creators go to these things called seminars. And these seminars have things called networking receptions, and they end up hitting it off with somebody. And they get all excited, and they fall in love, and they say, we are going to do a JV. I have such a connection to you. We have everything in common. 
you're so heart-centered and so pure. You're exactly who I want to do business with based on having shared half a Captain and Coke. And so yep. they dive no, into these things. Next thing you know, next thing you know, they're doing all these joint webinars and joint Facebook lives, and they're merging their stuff together. And one of the issues that I have seen come up with that time and time again is JV Partner A and JV Partner B still have their own businesses. But one of the JV partners gets it in their head that because the JV exists, they now own half that other person's business. So if JV Partner A and JV Partner B are having a leisurely Thursday afternoon Skype chat, you know, hey, how's it going and everything, and JV Partner A says, hey, you know what, I just booked this great new client, and JV Partner B says, where's my cut? Like, right. well, no, that's not your cut. It's not part of our JV. That's my business. Really? Really? That looks like what we do in our JV. Where's my cut? Yep, no, absolutely. The other problem that you can run to is at the end of the JV, when the JV falls apart or, or just naturally ends, and you have content, you have data, trademarks, whatever it is that you have, who gets what? Right. Uh, you know, it's a very common problem. So if you don't have it in writing, <laughs> you know, it turns into uh, nasty letters at least, and, yeah, it can really end up with people leaving with, you know, a bad result or a bad taste in their mouth. The other thing is you always need to look at your potential founders and do due diligence on them. Um, there's a famous case that lawyers like to snicker about where somebody called a, an attorney and they had – uh, you know, a larger company that they were trying to put together and everything was growing. They weren't profitable, but they had something like you know, $400 million in venture capital ready to go. The venture capital did due diligence and found out that one of the founders was a felon. <laughs> and so, oh, oh so boy. They, yes. So the funding yeah, dried yeah, up not, very not, quickly. Yeah. And I don't want to put that down because we have, we've had guests on our show who actually uh, you know speak on the topic of being a felon and reforming yourself and reentering society and giving back, which is a beautiful thing. But all the same, you have to ask um, yourself, okay, so we find out that they had a felony conviction for what? Um, it could be that they used to have an alcohol problem and it was a DUI, but they're sober now and have been for 26 years. Uh, but, could it no, be no, no. but could it be embezzlement from the year before last? That's a different story. Right. Those are two distinctions. The other thing is that, yeah, it, it isn't even so much the issue that there's a felony or that there's some you know, something bad in the background. It's, it's the issue that it wasn't transparent, that that wasn't presented up front to, in this case, the venture uh, capital individuals. Now, if you do that and then explain it and you're transparent about it, then you're absolutely right. It, you know, there's often a chance to either deal with it, you know, or, or it just becomes a non-issue. But if you don't say anything, and then somebody's about to write a check, and the attorney goes, hold on, hold on, you know, we've, what's this? <laughs> and somebody, you know, everybody yeah. looks around. That's when you run into serious problems. Or, God forbid, they write the check, and then they find out, and then it's, oh, then it gets very ugly very quickly. Oh, yeah, seriously. Uh, and, that, and that's just one of the things. We, we, I mean, that's something you have to deal with in terms of being a founder is who you're getting into bed with. Uh, I mean, because if you're talking about starting a business with somebody, even starting a time-limited JV – uh, you, you got to understand why folks who do one-night stands usually don't take the person's calls the next day. You don't have a choice. You're going to have to take their calls the next day. You're going to have to take their emails. You're going to have to deal with your name being next to their name under the neon lights. Uh, have you done your due diligence? Are you ready for this? Have you looked at their social media? What are they posting? What are their views? You know, I mean, is it anything you're going to be uncomfortable with? Is it going to be a problem with you know the audience you've built? Yeah, there are all kinds of issues there. 
Right, exactly. Like, uh, like, yeah, and, I, and I'm pretty transparent about this as well. Before anybody, come, anybody comes on the Business Creators Radio Show, and this frustrates some of our referral partners sometimes because it takes me a while to get back to them to say, yes, I'd like to have them on my show, is I do those checks. Like, you know, Richard, I, I had a chance to check you out. Uh, I was very impressed with what I found, which was awesome. Uh, but I found a few folks where it's like they're posting this kind of crap on social media, uh, I don't want a mention that they were on my show next to this. Sorry, right. no. Uh, so you got to you know, be conscious of that. And I've even counseled people who were close to me that wanted to get vitriolic about topics on social media that could be considered divisive, especially in today's environment. Say, wait a minute. Uh, I'm just thinking about this. If you were, if I, if I saw that you posted that and you were somebody I didn't know. They wanted to be on the Business Creators Radio Show. I would turn you down and not even tell you why. I'm telling no, you that that would happen. So imagine how many opportunities you're about to lose with this. If you have uh, a need to vent about this, find some private group of like-minded people and go vent behind closed doors. But don't share it out on your public news feed that's connected to you. Uh, because, I mean, you're just, you're just asking for it. And if you post that and it ends up adversely impacting somebody you work with, like a client or of yours or somebody of whom you are a client, and they say, what are you doing associating with this person? Look what they do. Do you really want to deal with that? I mean, do you even want to have to take the time out to issue a press release or give an explanation? I don't. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the various topics we'll discuss today, that wasn't one we were really going to touch. But if I had advice for anybody, whether they're an entrepreneur or not, online, you know, going online, that is it. That is it. When you say something on social media, it is there. And you need to think about social media, your personal views versus your business views. Um, right. You know, I see people get on there and discuss politics and whatever your political views, that's fine. But as we uh-huh. all know in this country, you know, we're seriously divided. And, and so if you know, yeah. a percentage of your clients are, are very liberal or very conservative and you express the opposite view, you know, you may be doing more damage than you realize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like me, for instance, I don't wear it on my sleeve. But if you take five minutes getting to know me on social media, you could take a wild guess who I voted for in the last election. I'm not going to say it here, but everybody who knows me knows where I fell on that one. And sometimes right. within certain specific contained areas, I do share things that are a little bit political. But in mind of the fact that I ask myself this question as I'm typing, if this was shown to my clients, what would they say? I ask that question every time before I hit send on something. If this was shown to my client, what would they say? And Absolutely. If I, can, if, I cannot, if I cannot come up with anything short of my client saying to the person, you know what, leave Adam alone. It's none of your business. If that's not the minimum – response that that client would give, then I'm not going to post it because it's just not worth it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and there are tons of divisive subjects that are out there. And so it's it's difficult to avoid everything. But I think, no, you're absolutely right. right. Just thinking about it. If you think about it, use common sense, you know, you're probably going to be fine. But it's important to realize that, you know, other people have different views. And if those people are your potential customers or clients, well, (laughs) sometimes you need to be a little careful about what you say because, you know, spite yourself uh, if you you post something a little bit that's off. So that is incredibly important. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Let me let me ask you another question here, real quick, because I because I think about this in terms of personal injury law. Uh, let's say uh, you go to a shopping mall 
and a person takes a spill out in the middle of the mall. I've heard of cases where that person would sue the mall, but they would also sue all of the outlet stores surrounding where the fall happened, just trying to cast as wide a net as possible to see who would just pay up. I've heard these stories. I, I don't know what the outcomes of any of those are, but I remember hearing a lot about that back in the day especially. Is it possible today that if somebody posts something on social media that turns out to be libelous, for instance, and the person who feels they're being liable decides to sue, they may say, oh, let's go look at this person's clients. Uh, actually, let's go, yeah, let's go look at the person's clients because they're paying this person. Uh, can we sue them about association and just see who pays up? I mean, have you heard of things like that? Do you think that's, is that legally possible? Um, well, anybody can file a lawsuit. Um, whether you would prevail, I would, I would seriously doubt it. I think that we haven't seen too much of that online, and the reason being that um, there's a law called Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act, and basically it deals directly with libel and, and talks about, you know, that uh, really the person that's posting uh, the offending statement, alleged offending statement, is really right. the only person that can be held liable for it. So, for instance, okay. if you're talking about, you know, people jump on, you know, whatever it is, Twitter and have a battle, they can't sue Twitter. Um, and so the ability right. to move beyond to clients and what have you, probably pretty remote. However, that section of the law is under attack at this point um, right now, and so we're kind of waiting to see how that's going to develop. So it is an issue to keep an eye on. Yeah, just a lot of things to be careful of. Now, here's a topic that I know is going to get a lot of people sitting up in their chairs because most of the people on who listen to Business Creators Radio Show that I've interacted with and my own business as well is in addition to all my clients – uh, do this little thing that's called building an opted-in subscriber list. And they all have privacy policies because uh, if they work with me, I require them because I, uh, it's very important to have a privacy policy. And you can get a good privacy policy from uh, any reputable attorney can help you with a good privacy policy. Uh, there are even privacy policies written by attorneys that are available for sale. So it's not hard to have a good privacy policy. You have to be aware that different countries have different things, you have to think about where you do business and what your private policy needs to say. That might be beyond the scope of this interview, because that could be a whole separate power in itself. But here's the question. These privacy policies all include one very important statement. Think about how we will never share, rent, or sell your information to anybody. Richard, you argue that could be a disaster. Tell us about it. Uh, okay. Well, first, let me start um, with something that you said that is actually maybe more pertinent than you realize. Um, privacy law is, and email law is now very much country specific. So identify the audience that you have, where they are, where you're mailing, what have you, and make sure you understand those laws. The EU, the European Union with the 28 member states, is enacting a brutal privacy and data protection law on May 25th that will address email. If you are selling to people in the EU, even if you're offering them free goods and an email uh, message you know, that's offering an ebook or something of that sort would appear to qualify, you may need to comply with that law, and it is a bear. Um, so make sure you, you understand what's going on there. Canada has something similar. All of that aside, uh, the idea of uh, you know, telling users that you're not going to sell, share, or rent their information is a noble one. It makes sense, and like all noble gestures in the legal field, uh, it is a trap. And the problem that you have is the value of most Internet businesses is found in their customer database, uh, whether it be sales database or it be your mailing list. Okay, well, what are you going to do with your site eventually? What's your exit strategy? For most people, well, most people don't have one, to be quite honest, but for people who think about it, the idea is eventually I'll sell the site. Okay, well, 
the biggest asset that you have is that customer list. If you've promised not to sell, share, or rent your list, how are you going to sell your site? Uh, right. You can't. Well, you know, you can sell the basic graphics and what have you, but that's going to have a nominal value unless you're doing something very unique. And so there was a dating site uh, called Two.com. Uh, that was fairly large and was doing all right, and it was owned by a parent company that had bankruptcy problems, all kinds of financial problems, ended up in bankruptcy. And when the parent company got dragged in, so did all the subsidiaries and properties it owned, including True.com. True.com uh, was in the bankruptcy court. Another dating site called Plenty of Fish, many people have heard about it, came in and tried yep. to purchase the membership database because that's the yep. value of a dating site is the membership database. And I think they offer $700,000 or something of that sort. And the Attorney General of Texas and then a variety of other states objected. And they said, no, you know, true.com promised they wouldn't sell, share, or rent this information, and that's what this is. It's the sale of their information. And the court upheld that objection. And so true.com's membership database, really the biggest value of that, that site, suddenly was worth next to nothing uh, because they couldn't transfer it anywhere. Uh, so <laughs> with your sites, you want to make sure that you avoid that problem. Uh, you know, hopefully your sites will grow to a size where you're going to be in that kind of an offer. But regardless, you know, you have to look at your site and think, where's the value? And if I did want to sell it one day, you know, if I got tired of the Internet or ill or something of that sort, you know, what do I do with this? You know, how am I going to be able to transfer those assets? And if it is that database of information and personal data, you know, you have to be very careful about what you're promising. Now, the way around that is you can add language to your privacy policy that's going to discuss, you know, sales and transactions and, you know, okay, we won't sell and share and rent your data to you know, marketers. However, you know, if we do sell this business, uh, you know, your data will be part of the sale or something along those lines. So just have your lawyer look yeah. at it and make sure that, that that's there. But that's the big key. You know, this could hit some of our listeners fairly close to home. It may not be exactly what you're talking about, but one of the things that's all the rage right now are these Facebook bots. You know what I'm talking about? The things where you push a button, it starts a conversation, it allows them to automate some of that stuff to distribute links to reports, things like that. Uh, a lot of people right. are using these, many, these, these Facebook bots. And one of the there are several different companies that are playing in this space now of managing the bots, and one of which is this company called ManyChat. And for those who follow ManyChat, they know that I think it was four or five months ago, they were acquired. Uh, the, I don't know if it was the original founders, but the two people who, um, who had become identified with it as the owners sold it to this other guy. Now, one of the original owners or one of those original people uh, was a woman named Katya Sarmiento, who actually was a guest on our show here at Business Creators Radio Show before ManyChat came out. Uh, just uh, one of those small world things. And I remember for weeks, I kept getting all these emails that were in the voice of this new, this new guy that now owns ManyChat. And the, ba the banners on the email suddenly switched to so you had Katya and her partner on one side and this new guy on the other side of the banner. And he kept talking about over and over again how, how he was the new owner of ManyChat and how he was doing this and how he was doing that. And he kept going on and on and on about how he bought it. That's why they weren't doing it to be annoying. They were doing it to be transparent about the fact that this new entity had bought ManyChat because there could be some privacy and data delivery issues associated with that that people who are really in the know might be thinking of, like, hey, I have 5,000 subscribers in my Facebook bot, and I'm using ManyChat to manage that. What happens to that data? So they – I, I applaud them for going out of their way to be transparent, almost annoyingly so, and letting people know, you have data with us. It's about to be moved to this other place, just so you know. 
Yeah, uh, you know, privacy law and data, you know, control in the U.S. is kind of a laughable concept from a legal perspective because it just isn't that much um, from a legal perspective that applies to it, laws, regulations, things of that sort. There's a bit, but not not a ton of it. Um, you know, when in comparison to other countries, you know, it's 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 extremely. Um, you know, strict as to what you can collect and use and how data can be transferred. So, um, you know, it, it is interesting sometimes to see how these companies will change ownership or they'll change course and, you know, what they do with their data. Um, and sometimes they make simple mistakes. I think it was Instagram four or five years ago. Uh, you know, obviously people are posting their images and they changed their uh, terms to say essentially that, that we could sell, um, we being Instagram, we could sell the rights to, you know, your, your some of your data, your images. And, uh, there was this huge outrage and they had to push back, you know, to the previous terms and what they were doing wasn't actually uncommon in the U S <laughs> it was just poorly written yeah. and poorly presented. Um, but I think, you know, all these people that saw that and that were outraged have no idea what, what else is being done with their data. I mean, there are profiles out there of you that are, you know, hilarious. I mean, for all the complaining about the government sweeping up data, I can guarantee you Facebook and Google know more about you than your mom does. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. pretty amazing. And it, and it presents societal questions because, I mean, when I was younger, the idea of businesses sharing information like they do it would have been laughable. There would have been endless lawsuits over us. You know, but now we're seeing people's attitude changes. And you look at, like, the Amazon, you know, Internet, Internet of Things devices. Um, you know, Amazon has a new product that you can put in your, your bedroom and you can try on, you know, outfits and it suggests clothes for you and things of this sort. Uh-huh. And, you know, so what's the privacy issue there? How, you know. Because Amazon's keeping all that data, um, you know, Amazon's uh, Echo has already been used to convict somebody for murder. Um, right. A married couple, yeah, married couple. The man calls in, says his wife is dead. There was a, I've forgotten the story, a burglar or something. The burglar killed her, and they pulled up the Amazon Echo, Echo recordings, and it was obvious that there was a, they had a fight, and he killed her. And you know, obviously catching the guy is good, but you know how comfortable are people with all their data being, um, you know, collected through those, or even watching TV. Samsung was hit for um, leaving their mics on when you're watching TV and recording what you were saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of issues, and you know, there will be legal answers, but I think the bigger issue is, you know, societal answers. Are we comfortable with this? Are we not? You know, where's the line drawn? Um, you know, and you watch what's going on in Washington D.C. and it's hard to think of, you know, them them coming up with a logical answer uh, that makes much sense. So, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I watched some I mean, of the myself and I have theories over it, but it's not the scope of this interview, so don't get me started. Well, the Facebook was Zucker. some of the questions it was like, "Oh, yeah. you've got to be kidding me." Uh, you know, didn't exactly inspire confidence about them, you know, creating any kind of legislation that would remotely make sense. Um, so, is what it is. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, that that that's true, and I and I heard stories that maybe perhaps they were asking those dumb questions on purpose to create that popular outcry of "Don't regulate our internet." Do you really want this guy that uh, asks, "Well, how do you make money?" and uh, is Twitter a competitor of yours and all that? Do you really want these people deciding what we get to say and don't say online? Uh, one of the theories was that since it's already been demonstrated that. Facebook had made uh, chair, had made uh, campaign contributions to many of these people on these panels on both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans and not just Democrats. And maybe the whole thing was set up that way. I mean, that's just one of the theories. So you got to really think about what's at stake here, and and what was at stake in that conversation was ostensibly our data. 
Yeah, and I think people need to realize that um, you know your government is for sale, regardless of your politics. Um, so the right. FTC isn't. Yeah, the FTC is in charge of, of making rulings on deceptive advertising and things of this sort. And you know they looked at Google and you know whatever you may think of Google. And I think Google's definitely got some positive. I use Google search engines. I use a lot of Google tools. Right. Um, but you know if you do a search for anything remotely, you know interesting that has any remote commercial application, most of the listings you'll see at the top page are Google properties, and it raises antitrust questions. And the FTC here in the United States just doesn't do anything. They don't do anything. But you go to Europe and Google is fined something like $2.7 billion last month for antitrust because of that. Um, and, you know, and it's just, you know, it's it's interesting to see, you know, the different attitudes, if you will, um, based on, you know, who's running these agencies. Now, in Google's defense and Facebook's defense, this happens in every industry. And it, it, it's also if they weren't taking that position, somebody else would be in there, you know, but paying the money to the lobbyists and what have you on both sides to try and get their position uh, put forth. Um, but it is, yeah, the closer you look at government and particularly the agencies, you know, the more uh, disheartening it can be sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we're almost two-thirds of the way there already. This is a fast-paced interview, so i got to say I'm loving this. And, you know, we talked a little bit about why focusing on particular geographic markets can become a critical issue, especially when we spoke about the never share, sell, or rent your visitors' information online. And if you're in a global space and is an Internet marketer or an Internet business, you are by definition international because unless you take the time to block certain countries from seeing your website, and most people don't even know how to do that, uh, you, know, you technically <laughs> are uh, – are under the aegis of any law that they make pretty much anywhere. So that's something to be concerned about. But there are two things, uh, and we can come back to that if we have time, but there are two things I definitely want to hit here. And the next one has to do with four letters, DMCA. What is the DMCA, and how can people use it to attack other people stealing their content? The DMCA is uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's a federal law. It was enacted in 1998. And uh, 1998 was kind of a special year for the U.S. government, despite all, all the politics. Um, both parties recognized the Internet had all kinds of commercial applications and really could be an economic boon. And they passed quite a few laws to try to um, help sites and businesses, online businesses, grow without being crushed by traditional legal theories. And copyright is obviously the biggest, one of the biggest issues online um, because it's so easy to copy something and republish it somewhere else. And probably... 90% of all copy uh, infringement actions online are innocent. It's people doing it, don't even know, never even heard the word copyright or just don't know what right. they're doing and never think about it. Um, so the DMCA set up a situation where um, there are different aspects of it. The section that we're interested in is called 512C. And basically what it says is it says a website uh, cannot be held liable for copyright infringement for content uploaded by users so long as that, that website isn't what we'll call active, so that the website isn't involved in the posting. So if I go copy an right. article from the New York Times and I post it on my Facebook page, Facebook can't be liable for that as long as they follow a pretty simple compliance process. I can because I'm the one that posted. I'm the one that committed that act. And then you get into a traditional copyright infringement you know, debate, which we'll skip for now. Um, so that's how that works. Now, the important thing is that that site and anybody who's facilitating that site has access, if you will, to the data has to follow a compliance process. So if somebody steals your content online and it's happening, if it hasn't happened to you, it's a miracle. Um, it's happening. You know, 
Yeah, it happens to everybody. The it's question happened. is, what it's do happened, you? It's happened to me twice. So yeah. Well, probably even more, and you just don't know it. <laughs> yeah, those um, are the two that I caught, but yeah. Right, exactly. So what do you do? Um, well, when you find somebody that has stolen your content, republish it, what you want to do is um, look them up. You know, look up their who is for their domain name, and you're going to go down and you're going to hunt for their server listings. It'll be NS1, NS2 typically, and you'll see. Take that information, put it in a Google search, and when you hit that, it's going to show you who the hosting company is. And then at that point, you go to the hosting company and you look along the footer of their site for, it'll either say abuse, copyright infringement, or DMCA. And at that point, you can, you click onto that page and there'll be a complaint page and you can submit a complaint. And under the DMCA, what happens is, is that you submit this complaint showing, here's my link with my content. Here's the link of this person who stole my content. And then, you, you know, I promise this is my original content and a couple other things. Uh, and you submit that, and then that party, and this is something a lot of people don't understand, that party must take down that content. It's not a decision. They don't review it and evaluate it. They must take it down. Uh, and it's right. so long, and they're going to send an email out to that, whoever that party is, a vending party, saying, we have a DMCA complaint, uh, and you need to respond to this. We, you know, we're taking the content down. We're going to keep it down unless you come back to us with what's called a counter notice detailing all this information. Well, if the person stole your content, they're not going to counter notice. What are they going to say? Um, you know, so 99% of cases, that's going to get rid of that, that theft. And you'll see that page come down or what happens typically is the offending party will just take the page down so their whole site doesn't get taken down. And so that's just right. the really easy way, you know, to deal with it. Um, if you have a problem, the problem that you can run into is the DMCA is a law for the United States. It doesn't apply in other countries. And so if you are unfortunate enough to have your content stolen by somebody who is intentionally doing it, they're going to use a host in another country. They're going to you know, register their domain offshore. They're going to take all these steps to try to avoid being in the U.S. However, the nature of the Internet is such that most affiliate programs and most billing programs are run through U.S. payment processors. So at that point, you want to go through the site and you want to start looking at how are they making money with it. Uh, is it AdSense? Is it an affiliate program? Is it Amazon or whoever? And then you go to those sites and you look for their abuse links and you start submitting to them. If the person is selling something through PayPal, you go to PayPal uh, and you just hunt for these abuse links and then you start submitting copyright infringement complaints. And in the vast majority of cases, you know that's going to that's going to resolve your problem for you. Um, it's you can use a lawyer to do it. Quite honestly, you want to learn to do it yourself. It's really simple. Um, and if you take those steps, you know, in, in most cases, you're going to be able to get get your content, um, you know, the stolen content removed, and uh, you'll be happy with it. The, the thing that's unfortunate is that often people will just repost it somewhere else. Um, <laughs> so you kind of have to stay on top of it. Google gets something like 8 million complaints a month. Um, that's the other thing that you can do is you can submit complaints to all the search engines um, because they're listing that content, and they will take it down. Google can be a little tough uh, to deal with, but um, you know eventually they usually all get around to taking that content down. And if you start depriving that site of their traffic, well, you know what's the value of the content? If you don't have traffic, you could have the greatest website in the world, and it's useless. Um, so taking those kinds of steps can really, really, really help you protect your content. Yeah, um, and not to pat myself on the back, but uh, you know, I did have some awareness of that for myself that if the host doesn't 
help you, you do have other courses. You can just go after the money. And, you know, com companies like PayPal and most of your merchant processes are not going to want to be associated with somebody doing illegal and nefarious deeds. I mean, they, uh, they're harsh enough on people who are actually doing legitimate things. They just got this idea that it might have been something wrong. You think they're going to hesitate for one minute to just slam down a lid on you when it's cut and dried? Uh, I had somebody go into my Business Creators Institute kit, grab several of the pages, post them on their website as if it was their content, literally word for word, including a couple little traps I put in my language that I could easily point to and say, yeah, only Adam Homie would ever phrase it that way, so you're dead to rights. Although what they did was really blatant, and I, I raised bloody hell with them, and I gave them these unbelievable timelines of two hours to get it fixed, and then in 30 minutes I checked in, wanted to know why wasn't it done yet, and then right before the three-hour deadline I gave them, they notified me that, okay, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we got it, and we're investigating. And I said, there is nothing for you to investigate. Get my stuff off your site. And 10 minutes right. later they came back and they said, okay, 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 well, we took all your stuff down, and we replaced it with this. So check out the links that you had found before and tell us if what we posted now was appropriate. And uh, I said, yeah, that's fine because that's truly yours. Next time, you know, you seem to be creative enough to come up with this in five minutes, suppose, assuming you didn't steal from somebody else. Use your own creativity. You'll be better off. And they said, well, yeah, but you didn't have to be such a jerk about it. And I said, jerk, I went easy on you, pal, and I just left it at that. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, no, they, but, yeah, but, yeah. In that in that case, the best defense is really a strong offense, is my opinion. No, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and then for my bigger clients, you know, it's and we don't even start with the DMCA. We start with the cease and desist letter, and you know, a rain of frogs upon you, and yada yada yada. Um, you know, and it, it depends on the property as well. You know, if it's, it's something more substantive, an app or a course or something of that sort, then obviously you want to be more aggressive um, because certainly you have a right to be. Um, you know, but you know, also sometimes you have to sometimes you have to look at, at at the content that's been taken and before you get crazy, think about it. Um, you know, I've represented bands before, and you know, somebody's gone to one of their shows and they posted you know a YouTube video of the show, and the band you know is furious and. Yeah, but you actually read what the person is saying, you know, and my point to the band has been, well, this guy's obviously a fan. They think they've discovered a band that's great. They're trying to share this with all their friends. You know, do we really want to send them a burn in hell letter? Um, you know, maybe, maybe we should talk to them first and, you know, explain the idea of copyright because yeah. this person probably doesn't even know what it is. Um, you know, right. and so, yeah, but in the majority of cases you're talking about, yeah, people just blatantly stealing things. Yeah, you definitely need to be more aggressive. It was. It was pretty plain. I also had another case where I had a coaching client maybe about seven or eight year, years ago, and we gave them some suggestions on how to word their contact page, and I showed them a couple best cases, you know, best practice examples, one of which was one of my other clients. And I said, this is something just for you to consider. Look at how they're doing this. See how the, the funneling works. See how the language works. And then that, that first client of mine came back to me and said, look at our new contact page. It was the other client's word for word. And I said, uh, yeah, you're going to take that down, or I'm going to get my other client involved. Your choice. They took yeah, it down. My favorite is all the same. That just that just goes to show uh, how prevalent this stuff is. No, my favorite is when people copy the terms and conditions or a privacy policy from another site, and um, you know I point out to them, you know who wrote those, right? <laughs> you're copying. Yeah. A, you're copying a lawyer's work. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a good idea? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And as I said at the beginning of this call, there are attorneys out there. I'm not going to mention any names because there are a few products out there uh, that I think are perfectly legitimate that I've used actually that I don't uh, that, that you know I would stand by because they were generated by attorneys and they were put into engines with the idea that you purchase this and you can use it on your website as your own. So it's all transparent there. So in that case, you're getting uh, this language from an attorney who's qualified. They're an, inter they're an intellectual property attorney or an Internet lawyer. They have this all put together for you. You purchase the license to use it, and then you use it. Uh, and usually the, they use these generators where you type in certain variables about your own business, and it populates them to make it read properly. But what I see happen, Richard, is uh, – so many times, uh, you know, you see somebody and you can tell they copy-pasted their their privacy policy from somebody else. And aside from the fact, as you said, hey, you know what? Another lawyer wrote this. You're ripping off some lawyer. They don't even remember to, like, take the other company's name out of it and put it in their own because they don't read it carefully and they don't see how many times that other company's name is in there. There's a reason that when you see privacy policies, the name of the privacy policy holder for that company that owns that website is mentioned so many times. Right. Or, or the like, state, uh, there's, a, yeah, there's yeah. a venue clause with these agreements that says that there's a dispute. You know, you'll hear that the dispute will be resolved in this city and this state, and it's not their yeah. city or state. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things I look for. Like mine, clearly say Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm not traveling to you to resolve a dispute that happened because you came to my site. That's how with that. So you wanna you wanna mix it up with me? You know, get ready to spend some time on a strip. I mean, uh, that's just how that's how it's gonna be. I'm not flying to I'm not flying to Lansing, Michigan to resolve something that happened on my site. It's just not happening. Right. No. Definitely yeah, way and that, to go. And that, and it, yeah, and that's and that's another key for our listeners. I want to make sure you caught that. When you have these policies on your website, uh, you have to specify the arbitration, such as what is the policy for resolving disputes. What are the steps? Step one, step two, step three, and where will this happen? Because otherwise, you could find yourself in a court in the middle of Kalamazoo or uh, or uh, Montana or something. That's you know, unless you're in. Kalamazoo or you're in Montana, that could be a distance for me. And do you really want to deal with that? I don't think so. Yeah. On all your legal documents, you always need to think about it. The beauty of the web is that it's worldwide. The downside of the web from a legal perspective is it's worldwide. Um, so if you get dragged, yeah, you get dragged into court halfway across the country or in a jurisdiction where they're not going to be particularly friendly, um, you know, to your business idea or the concept that you're selling, you know, yeah, you're not going to be happy. I mean, you know, this happens in criminal law, federal authorities, will forum shop you know they, they're not coming to california to arrest somebody for selling medical marijuana you know because california right. has basically legalized it they're going to go to a much more conservative state uh to pursue that claim uh and in fact yeah. uh teaching child teaching child the comedians one of them i'm not sure which one um you know had that happened to him and he was uh, he was tried in pennsylvania or somewhere in a very conservative area of pennsylvania and uh yeah. i think he pled so you know yeah you have to really think of these things yeah, that's that's very true because uh, I mean I've and I've heard cases of uh, a lot of litigation in lawsuits or other types of actions. A big piece of it was just chewed up by what's the appropriate venue for the reasons that you describe. Uh, when you have jurisdictional disputes or options for jurisdiction, each side is going to fight for the jurisdiction that is most likely to be favorable to their interest. And it often decides the cases. Microsoft and Google. 
Um, yeah. know, Google Google used to, how should I say this, borrow executives, search executives from Microsoft, which is kind of ironic when you right. consider the search engines. Um, and in California, uh, non-compete clauses in employee agreements are extremely hard to enforce, almost impossible. Right. Uh, however, in Washington State, they are enforceable. And so Microsoft would write these clauses into their contracts with their executives, and really the litigation almost always boiled down to who filed first where. So, so if Google was going to yeah. hire an executive and Microsoft cut wind of it, they would file a lawsuit in in Washington, the state of Washington, you know, to try to enforce the agreement. While Google would be racing down to the courthouse to try to file a lawsuit in California to enforce, you know, to to fight that provision. So, and it ended up in some pretty humorous uh, decisions over the years. <laughs> yeah, and for any of our listeners who um, who may not be grasping this, so I think by this point there's very few. Just look at the news, and when you see court challenges to uh, what any federal administration is doing in this country right now, the court challenges tend to arise in circuits and jurisdictions that overall are ideologically friendly to the plaintiffs. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you're going to so, see so, so, the ninth so if it's district. Happening there, it's happening here too. Yeah, 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 but yeah, like yeah, the ninth district. That's what I was thinking of. Right. So, yeah. So when you have a conservative um, president or if it's Congress that's written the law, um, yeah, you're going to see a lot of actions filed in the more liberal jurisdictions. And then when inevitably it switches the other way and you have a Democrat and, you know, the White House, you're going to see the lawsuits filed in, you know, Alabama and places of this sort. And it's just it's just the game. (laughs) It's just the way the game's played. Exactly. Happens our industry, too. So. So, yeah, there's one more thing that we need to cover here. We have a few minutes, so I wanted to make sure, because I see this a lot in forums for Internet marketers and the Getty letter. So, how can our listeners dun, 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 avoid dun. receiving a... Uh-huh. So how can our listeners avoid receiving the nasty letter from a copyright owner, such as, drumroll, Getty Images? Okay, so um, you know the internet is is beautiful in the nature that it has changed the paradigm for information exchanges. What does that mean in plain English? It means that it's easy to copy and republish things, and in some cases it's perfectly legal. Such as you know somebody posts something on Instagram, you know you can repost it in your account or Facebook or whatever it is. Uh, but in other instances, you know, I think at the beginning of, uh, of the show we were talking about, you know maybe somebody goes to Google search images and they copy something there. And they post it, and they don't have a right right to do that. Well, that's often going to be copyright infringement. Um, copyright gives the person that created the work the right to essentially um, commercially make money off of it, whether that be through sales or anything of that sort. So any kind of image or content that you are going to pick up, you need to think about, do I have the right to use this? And if I have the right to use it, are there any limitations? So you can – let's talk about pictures. Pictures tend to be one of the more common areas. Um, if you see a cool picture on another side or another source, you can't just take it and republish it. Um, photos in particular almost never have – well, uh, rarely have a fair use defense because they're photos. There's nothing – it's not a parody. There's, you know, it's very hard to claim those things. So you want, always want to make sure – just get it in your mind, part of your little checklist. Okay, I, I created you know, this blog post or this video or whatever it is, you know, and I need some additional content. Where am I going to get it and what rights do I have to it? And just think that through. And the place to look is always in the terms and conditions of that's wherever you're getting it from uh, or any kind of uh, license or anything that you'll see. So, for instance, you have Creative Commons out there. Creative Commons has different licenses 
which will you know give you the rights to use uh, the content that uh, that's applicable to the license in certain different ways. So maybe they'll say you can use it on a blog post, but you can't use it in an ebook that you would sell. So you just want to read these things. The good news is is the sections uh, in these agreements are written in plain English uh, for this very reason. So you want to make sure that you have that um, authority and think it through and understand. Okay, I can use this because of this. If you're lazy, just go buy it. Well, if you're lazy, go buy it. If you really want to be tight and not have any problems in this area, go make it yourself. I don't understand, particularly in this day and age, why people don't make more original content. Smartphones, the quality of cameras, you know, you can take pictures, you can take videos, and they can be very high quality. The more original content that you create, the more value it has for your site, and the more value it tends to have with people who are um, your customers, your clients, your target audience, because there's an authenticity to it. Everybody knows what a stock photo looks like. Um, you yeah. know, if somebody posts a stock photo, what value does that have? Nothing. Uh, and and you're talking to somebody who posts them on his site regularly, <laughs> just because it's yeah. law. There's just nothing interesting to post. Um, but you right. know, if you you can go out and take pictures of you know your products, whatever it is, people using your products with videos, things of this sort, it's going to have far more value than if you go yank something from somewhere else. So just you know, generally keep that in mind. Um, but from a legal perspective, yes, you, you have to have authority take the the image so just think about that wherever you're getting it from you know what authority do i have to do this and sometimes sometimes it's the share provision and it can be hard to understand so youtube a lot of people will take youtube videos if you go to a youtube video and it allows you to share so it has that share link activated you can use that video um youtube has a clause in its agreement that says if somebody uploads a video to youtube they have to make that choice can it be shared or not shared the default is share so they are granting you a license to use it. And this is where things get a little confusing because of social media and, and sites of this sort. You know, if there is a share provision there, usually you're going to be okay. Um, but again, if you're looking for some kind of content that you're going to post to your blog and it's not, you know, it's not, you're not liking something or, you know, resharing something or something of that sort, you always have authority. When it comes to Getty Images, um, and we pick on Getty because Getty's the group that sends out the letters the most. What Getty is doing is they're saying, we have essentially management control over this image. Um, you know, you should have posted or you should have purchased this from us, bought a license, blah, blah, blah. The damages are $5,000, send it to us. Um, every situation is different, so there's the disclaimer. Make sure you talk to a lawyer. Um, but a lot of people don't understand how damages are awarded in copyright infringement lawsuits. So the biggest issue, one, was a copyright infringement, but two, what are the damages? Now, under copyright law, if you register a copyright for a new, um, what's called a work, a new work within the first 90 days, then you are entitled to statutory damages. And what yeah. that means is that a judge can choose between $250 up to $150,000 per infringement, um, or a jury sometimes, it depends how it goes. Um, but if you do not register within that 90 days, then typically the plaintiff is um, going to have to prove some kind of actual damages. So if you have a blog post and you have an image that Getty said that you stole and it's one of 5 million blog posts on your site and you get, you know, 5,000 visitors a month, well, what's the value of that picture? And the whole lawsuit's going to boil down to arguments about that, but I'm pretty sure it's not five grand. Um, so, <laughs> so making sure that you talk to somebody who knows, you know, kind of the game and how it's played. Um, you know, can really help you out in those images, but just avoid them. I mean, if at all possible, man, get original content. This day and age, it's pretty easy. 
Um, and then if you are going to purchase content, make sure that you get it from a, a valued source, a source that's going to be around. Typically, I would even suggest making sure that, you know, in the country that you're in, um, because if you're purchasing from, you know, a, a site that's based in, I don't know, Antarctica, uh, and somebody yeah. says, well, they didn't have the rights to this. Well, guess who's on the line? You, not the guy in Antarctica, because nobody's going to Antarctica. Um, so, you know, having that kind of authority, that kind of permission is critical. And just make it part of your checklist whenever you're going to post new content, and you, you should be able to avoid most of the problems. Awesome, and I think that's a great way to wrap up. We have two minutes left here. I want to give one of those minutes to you. Uh, Richard, what can you do for our business creators? I imagine we have some people on the edge of their seat. Sure. Uh, well, the first thing is, despite all the subjects that we discussed, don't don't get scared. Don't um, you know, forego an idea that you have. Don't think, oh, maybe I should shut this down. Um, these are all checklist items. Every business faces them. The world's not ending tomorrow if you have a problem with one of these things. Just go sit down with an Internet lawyer in your area. Um, lawyers are, are licensed by state, so I practice in California. Um, you know, there's at this point there's internet lawyers everywhere. So just you know, go hunt one down, sit down with them. Many often give you a free consult um, and show them your business model. And here's what we're doing. And if there are problems, that person will give you a checklist of items, and here's the priority, and here's not. And you can just work through them just like you do, you know, counting or anything else. So yep. you know, hopefully this this isn't something that you take and you know get terrified from and decide you know i'm going to go work in the post office for the next 25 years yeah uh, it shouldn't be that kind of a thing if you're in california you can reach me through my website socal internet lawyer and i'll give you a free consult just mention this show and um you know i'll, I'll be happy to, to help you out but if you're in another state again just sit down with an internet lawyer most of the times it's going to be free even if they charge you for an hour it's going to be a couple hundred bucks It'll be the best couple hundred bucks you ever spent um, because if there is a problem obviously you want to know about it now uh, instead of when somebody contacts you about it. Um, so I think if you take those exactly. steps, you're probably in good shape. All right, that's awesome. Thank you very much. So Richard Chapo, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. For everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. Till next time, have a great day. Take care.